Welcome back to the Gillette Health Podcast, where we give you tools to develop a balanced approach for health. I'm Dr. Kyle Gillette. And I'm James O'Hare, nurse practitioner. You may have noticed that our setup is not quite our usual setup today. And we have this lovely graphic I've spent the last two weeks working on in the background here. So what are we doing today? This is the TRT Iceberg. And um, this is an after-hours podcast, of course. In general, like, we don't focus uh, an entire podcast on a meme um, for our clinical series podcast. But I've really enjoyed these. Several YouTubers have done them. Zach Talander has done a few of them on strength sports and weightlifting. I believe Back Guy has also done a few of these. Yeah, um, that's the one that you showed me. And that my understanding of this is the very obvious things are going to be up in the clouds. Mm -hmm. Everybody can see them. And then as you go down and down and down and down, things that are less obvious about, in this case, the subject TRT or testosterone are going to be lower. Um, and what, where do myths fall in this? Yeah, um, myths in general would be, if they're an unknown myth, they would be at the bottom of the iceberg. But a lot of times a myth might not be fully elucidated, which kind of makes it fun. And that's the mystery of an iceberg study is we don't know a lot about the deep sea and the deep ocean. And we don't know a lot about certain things that are in the iceberg that may be based on anecdotes or experience um, for people doing steroids. So there's a lot of topics to go over. Um, also, thank you to any of our following on social media or friends or analysts that have given us good information and good ideas of what to put on this board. Yeah, so uh, speaking of our analysts, one of the first things that we wanted to talk about is where does the Titanic fit into this picture? And uh, you can see there's no Titanic drawn in here, but you do have a TRT quack drawn in. And if you look very closely, you can see he's got a little syringe there that's got your 200 migs of tests per week yep. compounded with an astrazole. He probably just left the compounding pharmacy yep. and he's on his way to give every patient his cookie cutter protocol. Once a, once a week or once every two weeks. Doesn't Pick matter. Your Pick your poison. <laughs> yep. $140 per shot either way. So you might as well get it every two weeks. It's half, half the price. Yeah. And what was something else you noted about this? Looks like he may have, he may be running a med spa as well. Yeah, um, the lips are definitely overfilled. A lot of times you go to your um, health optimization or functional medicine clinic, you have an inexperienced injector, perhaps practicing outside of the scope of practice. Um, and they're, you know, that's your uh, triad, aesthetics, hormones, and weight loss. Wait a second, what do we do at our clinic? <laughs> Uh-oh, we'll edit that out. Anyway, <laughs> moving on to some questions. <laughs> yeah. Uh, TRT and acne. So uh, this, where are we going to put this on the level of, or what iceberg level do we put this at? Is that the right term to use? Yeah, I would put this up in the clouds. I guess you could argue uh, steroids or steroid cycles are more associated with acne than TRT, but it can certainly be the case. And often it develops most right when you start therapy. Yeah. And I guess as far as the incidence of that, I would say it's less than half of people are getting acne or bothersome acne when starting on TRT, assuming that it's appropriately dosed. Obviously, it's going to be dose dependent, just like most side effects are. Usually, it's a transient concern, but for people that especially had acne during their teens, someone who had had to go on Accutane, perhaps, yep. they are at a higher relative risk compared to someone who never had a problem with acne in their life. Certainly. Um, DHEA and testosterone are both correlated with acne. They can both be 5-alpha reduced to stronger androgens, increasing sebum production, increasing oiliness of the skin. Um, so there's a lot of things that can contribute to that. I suppose another um, reason for this being above the surface of the ocean is this is usually something that your TRT pill mills or TRT quacks see coming. Um, it's not something that's unexpected. Like um, you would have the bottom of the iceberg with a Titanic hitting that. Um, a lot of these things later down the list are certainly not expected. This one is. All right. Next we have, um, how can you prevent high hematocrit was a question. So we'll just put TRT raises red blood cell count or mm -hmm. TRT raises hemoglobin. So that's something that is 
somewhat well-known. Uh, it's referred to a lot of times as polycythemia, not to be confused with polycythemia vera, uh, but you certainly will see increases here with testosterone, uh, sometimes concerning, sometimes therapeutic. It's actually given for anemias, not as commonly now, but historically it has been used in that mm -hmm. context. Yeah, and this is becoming more and more well-known. It's above the surface of the ocean. It's not as well-known as acne, but it uh, is often managed, but not managed correctly. So what you see often is over-phlebotomy. Um, there is so much blood donation. There's so many um, blood draws that's scheduled. They're not checking hemoglobins and hematocrits, and they're certainly not checking a ferritin. It's very common to see a high hemoglobin, high hematocrit, erythropoietin spikes because you're donating blood so frequently, and you're iron deficient. Um, and this is still a very common thing to see. Yeah, and if you are iron deficient, your TRT is probably not going to make you feel better. You're probably going to be like, why the heck am I still so tired? I thought this was supposed to be helpful in that capacity. Yep. Uh, next, we have uh, how can you prevent estrogen and prolactin from rising? So TRT raises estrogen, and then we can put and prolactin perhaps with a question mark there. This is... Um just beneath the surface of the ocean. Um, it's becoming more and more well-known. There's a lot of cookie cutter protocols other than anastrozole, I suppose, if you ask the question, um, how do you prevent estrogen from rising? Then an aromatase inhibitor would not be a wrong answer, but for health purposes, and also if you don't want a huge shed of your hair and a dry, terrible skin, then... So the better question is, do you want to prevent estrogen from rising? You do not, but you wanna prevent peaks in estrogen. Estrogens and androgens both have um, a lot of different, um, I guess, um, variability in how the patient feels and what you're seeing phenotypically and their actual level. For example, for estradiol, if you have uh, a female that is just after menopause, they're still relatively sensitive to estrogen, their estrogen receptors um, uh, or sorry, less sensitive to estrogen, mm -hmm. then they can tolerate a higher dose of estradiol replacement Whereas if someone's been menopausal for 10 years, they've had rock bottom estradiol levels, then even the lowest dose of estrogen might feel like a very high dose. Yeah, and there's probably a different level of genetic estradiol sensitivity. You're thinking of, you know, in men, some men can tolerate very high doses of testosterone and or anabolic steroids and not mm -hmm. get, you know, estrogen mediated issues like mm -hmm. nipple sensitivity. Other men, they are going to end up with that. It probably has to do with their sensitivity of their androgen receptor and then sensitivity of estrogen receptors, which we know a little bit less about. I guess that's a good segue into post-aromatase inhibitor syndrome. I would put this pretty deep in the ocean, not in the very deep ocean, but um, this is another good example of estradiol receptor sensitivity. Um, it is becoming more and more well-known, but the general premise of this is even after you stop the aromatase inhibitor, a lot of times you feel terrible because it takes you a while to get back to a normal sensitivity of your estrogen receptors. Meaning that you are hypersensitive almost coming off of that. Yes. Uh, you might have a, a higher free testosterone than higher than your sensitive estradiol, but you might feel like your estradiol is two or three or even five times higher. Um, way deep in the ocean, this is why they sometimes use an injection of estradiol, which I generally don't recommend. Um, see our other podcasts for much better ways to treat your PFS, but some people use injectable estradiol specifically to try to desensitize their receptors as much as possible. And this is speaking about men who have been on an AR with their TRT. Yes. So next we have a question about women as it relates to their testosterone levels. It says, should women try DHEA first? So uh, I guess we could draw DHEA equals TRT question um, mark, because a lot of men will take DHEA as a test booster um, and they don't seem to really get much of a proportional rise in total or free testosterone. It has some very weak androgenic effects. And I think you'll see some studies in older men where they get some very, very small like body composition changes. So maybe you yeah. trade a pound or two of fat for a pound or two of lean mass over six months. It's not a whole lot. Um, 
Whereas with women, especially if they have something like an oral contraceptive that's raising their SHBG, yep. you can oppose that a little bit with an androgen like DHEA. Uh, but I think it has more variability than if I'm giving a woman just testosterone. It's a little bit more unpredictable as like, what kind of response is this person going to get? Yeah, a lot of this has to do with baseline DHEA levels, which are generally measured as DHEA sulfate. It's a better long-term measure. And much of it has to do with adrenal function. So most of your DHEA sulfate is going to be downstream of adrenal steroidogenesis in the zona reticularis. And if you're in adrenopause, so you, first you have adrenarche when, um, before adolescence, when you're you know 11 years old, 10 years old. And then you have menarche as a female um, later on. But adrenarche is when your adrenals kick in and you do get a spike in androgens and downstream to that estrogens. And then adrenarch, or sorry, ad adrenopause is sometimes concurrent, sometimes after menopause, but depending on where your baseline DHEA levels, if you're a congenital adrenal hyperplasia carrier, they're probably gonna be very high, 500, even 1,000, and then they're slowly gonna decrease. The lower your DHEA levels in general, the better the candidate you are. One of the main side effects we see is acne. Absolutely. And I've heard you refer to it as kind of a, a backup or a reserve fuel tank. Um, mm -hmm. And if you're looking at it, it's like, well, do you really want to, you know, keep filling up the reserve fuel tank um, when you can use a more targeted approach? Yeah. It depends on the person and if that's tolerable, if they get acne. Yeah. So next we have TRT and blood pressure. So this is a, uh, I guess, a very simple yet very complex interaction that happens here. So mm -hmm. does TRT affect blood pressure? If the answer is going to be yes. You're going to get more blood volume. Uh, you are going to have more sympathetic nervous drive. Um, on the flip side, you're going to have more nitric oxide signaling. So this is actually a positive. You'll see some people, typically if they're metabolically healthy, taking care of themselves, exercising, they may not actually see an increase in their blood pressure. Mm -hmm. Just talking about the, one of my favorite medical words, sphygmomanometer, checking yeah. the blood pressure, probably going to be about the same. But if I have the guy who's sedentary on the couch eating Pop-Tarts and Cheetos, that person is likely to experience a worsening of their blood pressure. They're not going to be getting rid of sodium as well in some cases. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, there's some interplay there with the, the RAS system. And I don't know how deep we want to go there, but yeah, it's fairly well known that TRT can increase blood pressure. You know, this is in, uh, I believe, the package insert. Uh, it's something mm -hmm. that people in traditional medical communities are monitoring as well. If an individual that does have hypertension or prehypertension starts TRT, then as you mentioned, it's very reasonable to look at that renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, RAS, as the reason why their blood pressure might be getting even worse. So even if the, um, uh, the most recent guidelines say, you can start a thiazide or you can start a calcium channel blocker. Um, consider treating the root cause of blood pressure increases in those individuals. That is certainly something to think about. We've already talked about um, hematocrit, which is basically the thickness of blood. So if your hematocrit is 50%, it's half, it's 50% red blood cells and 50% plasma. So that can also have effects, not necessarily of blood pressure, but if you do have prehypertension and you also have erythrocytosis, and that's going to alter your risk for things like left ventricular hypertrophy, that's more demand on the heart, um, which we discussed at length in our clinical podcast, um, mostly discussing the recent New England Journal of Medicine study, mm. which did find an increased incidence of AFib and a slightly increased, not statistically significant, but a slightly increased systolic and diastolic blood pressure in the TRT group. Mm -hmm. I believe, yeah, VTE was increased as well. So it was great news for heart disease. Yes. Um, but uncovered a couple of other, what we think of as gems, because it's information that we get a better understanding on now. Mm -hmm. um, so pros and cons of HCG versus TRT. So can HCG be TRT? HCG can be. Uh, some people, including myself, refer to this as HCG monotherapy. HCG is human chorionic gonadotropin. We've discussed it in many podcasts in the past. But it does have actions other than just binding to the LH receptor in the testes and the ovaries. Um, it also is very similar to the TSH molecule. So at high doses, it can have a clinically significant effect on the thyroid. And then it can also alter the enzymatic uh, balance. So sometimes it's an off-label PFS treatment. 
between 5-alpha reductase and then also aromatase. So often you do see more activity in aromatase and potentially more side effects like gynecomastia. Um, in general, it's not a great long-term TRT. And I suppose if you have an individual um, with like bilateral testicular cancer, then it is not a good TRT <laughs> at all. Yeah. I mean, with the HCG, I think you mentioned, you know, the aromatase activity mm -hmm. that gets upregulated. That seems to be the dose limiting step. I mean, if you look at some of the fertility studies where they're giving guys 6,000 IUs per week of HCG, you can get a total testosterone of around 2,000. Uh, but I don't think those guys feel very good at that level because they're getting a ton of estradiol. Lots mm -hmm. of them are getting gynecomastia, elevated mm -hmm. blood pressures, probably a lot of emotional sensitivity going around during that time. Yep. So some guys get a pretty robust response from HCG out of mm -hmm. a relatively low dose. Uh, and then some guys like HCG as an adjunct to their TRT, again, at a low dose. But once you start inching up that dose, it's a point of diminishing returns. And it's like, you know, is it really worth it to continue kind of chasing this? Yeah, that's a good way to summarize it. Slightly different risks, slightly different benefits, but in general, unless there's a short, medium-term reason for it, it's not a good long-term replacement. Yeah, and you can come off of it easier. It's kind of like a, a test drive. You bounce back relatively quickly. You don't have to wait several weeks for that hormone to clear your system. Yeah. Um, the next question is, um, I guess it's about hormone replacement, uh, potentially, but not about TRT. Um, it, it was asked to discuss more about peptides that aid in performance and muscle building. Hmm. A question that I frequently get. I could be at the gym and I could get this question. Um, people ask on Instagram and it's a topic that we do enjoy. I did see a thumbnail with you in it. It said, this peptide will make you recover like steroids. Which one was that one? <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the podcasts that you went on, I was like, I'm pretty sure he didn't say that, but <laughs> I clicked on it. I'm like, ah, I'm going to click on this I, one. I would click on that. Yeah. That's great. It's a good title. Um, yeah, we'll just use that title again for this video. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, the next we have uh, testosterone in highly active menopausal women. So at, at the end of the day, testosterone is a quality of life drug. Um, it's used off-label at this time for libido, although the UK may beat us to a on-label uh, indication for testosterone in women for libido. Um, in highly active women, they will probably tolerate that better, assuming they have better metabolic health. Uh, a woman who does not have good metabolic health, perhaps she's diabetic or pre-diabetic, mm -hmm. um, is likely to get some, you know, hirsutism adverse effects from the testosterone and not tolerate yep. it as well. Um, certainly not an equivalent dose. Yeah, uh, that's a good way to look at it. Um, testosterone is more important to individualize for women than men. So a good rule of thumb for this is true replacement TRT for men is usually somewhere between about 80 milligrams a week total, often split into multiple doses, and about 150 milligrams a week. There's obviously outliers, it's usually there for most men. And that's uh, you know a difference of about, uh, if you double 80, that's about 150. You know, So there's a pretty good range. Um, some men might need twice as much. But with females, there is a much larger range, perhaps five to 10 times as much. And some women do not need and cannot tolerate any testosterone whatsoever. Um, often these individuals have diagnosis of PCOS or androgen dominance or hyperthecosis or um, whatnot. And some females can tolerate very high doses of androgens. And for those asking, I would consider a very high dose of androgen, um, a total of 10 milligrams subcutaneously injected testosterone zipionate per week in a female. Yeah, I would agree that's a higher dosing. And, you know, you mentioned PCOS. That kind of caught my eye as well because you have a highly active menopausal woman. And uh, honestly, women with PCOS mm -hmm. are often tremendous athletes because they have this yeah. elevated testosterone level that allows them to recover from exercise better. Mm -hmm. And no, just because you go through menopause does not mean that your PCOS disappears. So that's something to keep in mind is that Starting low is generally recommended because yep. you don't know the individual sensitivity to testosterone and someone who has PCOS is likely not to tolerate testosterone mm -hmm. well, you know, perhaps except for exceedingly low doses. Yeah. And we've done a standalone podcast on PCOS, maybe two of them before. I think we've done two of them at this point. So see that for more information. But um, one other note on that 
if you do have PCOS and your provider's putting you on testosterone and we'll just take 100 milligrams of oral spironolactone and that will attenuate the side effects or just get laser hair removal or um, just do this or do that or with the extra wrinkles that the DHT is bringing, just get some preventive botulinum toxin. And none of that is necessarily wrong, except perhaps using spironolactone as a first line agent. But often after the window of fertility, so no more fertility or conception is desired, and there's also no chance that you'd become pregnant um, unplanned. Most often dutasteride at a low or intermittent dose is a better choice than spironolactone for those women, especially if they balance their athletic performance um, and other areas of their health other than just not getting virilization. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, you have a, a sinking ship or, you know, cracks and you're just trying to like put your finger in and plug all the different holes. And the problem is, it's like, hey, you know, it's this testosterone that's driving all these things, but why not block that trash hormone DHT and solve some of these problems? Yeah. Um, another podcast that we just did on that as well. So uh, we can link that one for those that are interested. Uh, next, we have affinities for membrane androgen receptors versus nuclear androgen receptors, uh, how different androgens behave differently. Um, There's actually a really good study about mm -hmm. SARMs that has some overlap here. Mm -hmm. um, I'll go ahead and lay it out here, and then we'll get into that question. And with SARMs, uh, this was a single-person study, almost a case report, uh, just a young guy taking SARMs, and a university said, hey, can we biopsy your muscle? So he said yes, and he had this muscle biopsy done, and what was shown was he did gain lean body mass using the SARMs, and he was also taking uh, a peptide, not peptide, called ibutamorin at the same time, and they found that androgen receptor content in the muscle actually went down, mm -hmm. which is not a particularly good thing in my yeah. mind. If you look at some of the more anabolic things like testosterone or oxandrolone, we have very good and mm -hmm. clear data that that upregulates androgen receptor in the muscle. Generally, any androgen steroid would upregulate a mm -hmm. positive feedback loop for the androgen receptor. Yeah, things like carnitine can do this as well, the mm -hmm. tadalafil to some extent. Mm -hmm. um, so it was kind of disturbing to me that the, the SARM was reducing the AR content. I, we speculated about some possible causes there, um, but at the end of the day, that was something that I thought was a bit concerning. So don't do SARMs. <laughs> and then I guess as far as the binding potential, how does, you know, two that we've talked about, testosterone and DHT, how do those differ in terms of the way that they are eventually getting to the nucleus and driving androgen signaling? The affinity for the androgen receptor for DHT is stronger, but keep in mind, and you can look at the affinity studies um, and look at the value and whatnot. And a lot of times for receptor affinities, a lower number is a stronger affinity. So it's kind of hard to um, put two and two together with that. But keep in mind that within each individual, and again, we've done a podcast on this too, depending on the number of CAG repeats and other factors, the um, ability of the androgen receptor to bind all androgens is varied. So if you have a very high number of CAG repeats, then you're going to relatively bind slightly weaker. So the analogy we use is, the androgen receptor is a door and different androgens are DHT would be a huge, you know, the world's strongest man. And then DHEA would be, uh, you know, a butterfly. And then testosterone would just be a regular person. <laughs> so some of them have an easier time breaking down the door, depending on your genetics, specifically from your mother, that's where you got your X chromosome, where the androgen receptor is. Um, you're going to have either a hollow door, a solid wood door, or a heavy steel door or somewhere in between. Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. And you know, as far as these being mapped out, yeah, it's hard to say. And a lot of times the dosages that people are using or that are used in studies are not like milligram to milligram. Mm -hmm. So uh, it gets into the weeds a little bit there, but hopefully that gives people a good idea of some framework they can use yeah. to kind of think about that. By the way, I'm just waiting for a commenter to type. Um, I'm not worried about this because I stack my SARMs on top of my TRT. Oh, nothing to worry about. <laughs> yeah. Why didn't I think of that? Um, Let's see. Next, I guess we could talk about effect of SHBG on glucose and presumably insulin, insulin resistance, insulin sensitivity, and which sports benefit from high SHBG versus low SHBG. 
Yeah, it would seem the directionality of that is opposite of what was proposed. So it's not necessarily that SHBG is affecting glucose, but rather uh, the other way around, specifically yep. like the circulating glucose levels, insulin resistance, intrahepatic fat. They tend to drive SHBG and predict responses you know, in SHBG, how that's going to change depending on you know, if you lose weight or if you have bariatric surgery, if you reduce your liver fat, those things are going to tend to increase SHBG. Uh, I haven't found anything suggesting that SHBG is going to directly modulate glucose other than some associations with higher SHBG, lower risk of type 2 diabetes. Um, but there are some interesting, you know, in vitro studies looking at SHBG's action on like fat cells, for example, it seems to decrease mm inflammation generally, you know, whatever that sort of means. So it's not something where I'm actively worrying about every patient with a slightly low SHBG, like, oh, we have to get this up. When it comes to TRT, you kind of work with the SHBG you have mm -hmm. um, and you titrate the dose to that rather than moving the SHBG around in relation to the testosterone. Yeah, higher is correlating with longevity, but you think about reasons why people have very high SHBG, relatively low carb diets, isocaloric diets or being a caloric deficit, lots of cardio, that's great for longevity, or um, it being insulin sensitive. So if somebody does have a low SHBG, just ask yourself the questions, do I have insulin resistance or hyperglycemia? Maybe wear a CGM. Um, do you have a high carb diet and are you doing your cardio? Yeah, those are good places to start. And as far as the second part of that with sports, I, I don't know if it's because that Powerlifter has an SHBG of five that he's good at powerlifting. And I don't know if it's because the marathoner has an SHBG of 100. That's probably not why they're good at marathons. It's just a result of the training mm -hmm. and in some cases, the drugs that go into those sports. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense. <laughs> um, uh, next is an interesting question. Um, do 19 norotestosterone derivatives um, are they correlated with homosexual tendencies regarding the anterior hypothalamic area? Where are we gonna put this one on the board? <laughs> um, uh, I guess this would be in the very deep ocean and um, other than individuals looking for this on Google Scholar if they want to, I feel like we can just move I on. Don't have much to add here, yeah. so where were we? Uh, oral testosterone replacement therapy. Didn't we try that in the 70s and 80s? We did. Um, and people have also tried it on their own with D-ball uh, oral only cycles as well. So it used to be we had methyl testosterone, which of course is uh, hepatotoxic, um, but uh, a lot of oral steroids are 17 alpha alkylated. Um, and that's why in general we don't use them anymore. Um, but uh, now there are actually several different, there are three different, or maybe it's now two, but there used to be three different lymphatically absorbed Testosterones, Tlando is probably the most well-known one, and it is basically a lymphatically absorbed, so theoretically it would skip first pass metabolism. I'm not convinced that it does that 100%, but let's say it's 99%. It does drop SHBG, so either the level of 5-alpha reductase in lymph tissue is very high, or a little bit of it goes to the liver and hits the SHBG there. Mm -hmm. um, but in general, this is pretty well tolerated and the concentration peaks after just a few hours and is mostly out of the system overnight. Yeah, so it's gonna be less suppressive in theory compared to something like uh, long-acting injectable testosterone. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if that's been clinically studied and sperm counts looked at and things like that, but from a mechanism standpoint, that's what you would expect. So it could be a better option for someone who's swimming like bridge off of their TRT and thinking about, hey, you know, in the next year I'm thinking about fertility because yep. um, you really do need to start planning that farther out. Um, and as far as the risk of red blood cell count going up, um, risk of blood pressure elevations, they're still there, mm -hmm. but they're not as pronounced because, yep. I mean, if we're looking at pharmacokinetics and you think of the area under the curve, so total testosterone exposure is going to be significantly less uh, compared to you wake up and you go to bed with a total testosterone of 800. Yeah, that's a, a good summary of oral testosterone. A few other notes on oral testosterone. I've heard a few forward-thinking urologists say this should be the new thing instead of Clomid for individuals under 35 or under 40. 
that are desiring fertility. I think it's probably too early to say that, but it Mm -hmm. is extremely promising for that purpose. And yes, you would think that um, even if you stacked it now, you know, if you, some people ask about stacking clomiphene and clomiphene with TRT itself, um, generally not a reason to do that. And there's much better options, but, um, and even gonadorelin and uh, other things too. But with this, it would potentially slight work slightly better if it was for a short period of time. Um, but um, again, with these protocols, it's really too early to say, but the takeaway is it is a very reasonable option. A lot of urologists and endocrinologists are using it as well. And at some point it will become mainstream. They are also studying the exact same molecule. It's an oral testosterone on decanoate. There's no deposite, so the esterases reach it very quickly, but um, they are studying it for fatty liver disease. Yeah. How did they describe that when I'm trying to rack my brain? It was described as a novel, novel. oral pro-hormone. Pro-drug. Pro-drug. Because it's the esterase cleaves the undecanoate ester mm-hmm. very quickly. Novel oral pro-drug or pro-hormone androgen agonist. Yeah, androgen receptor agonist. That was how it was described in the paper. And I was like, wait, that's just Plando. <laughs> but they're looking at it for fatty liver, which like you makes me a little bit suspicious that, wait, is this really bypassing the liver completely? Mm-hmm. Because then if so, wouldn't just TRT help with fatty liver? And I mean, I don't know. It's interesting. Um, so we'll be watching the research there because, you know, hepatobiliary health and liver health um, is becoming a growing problem. Yep. So, you know, they're going to be developing novel or non-novel strategies to treat that. Yeah. Um, last note on that. Yes, it does decrease SHBG a decent bit. And a lot of people look at this like a positive thing, but it is not necessarily a positive thing. It, it's still a good option, but uh, it's an interesting way to see it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Next, we have a particularly medically literate listener who said, doesn't DHT bind the androgen receptor, the same androgen receptor that regular (laughs) testosterone binds to? Uh, And if people watched our story, we had in the very depths of the ocean, the DHT receptor, uh, because you'll hear this mentioned on occasion in podcasts, people talking about the DHT receptor, but our very astute listener here pointed out that as far as we know, DHT does in fact bind the androgen receptor, the same one that testosterone or oxandrolone or SARMs are going to be binding to. It's almost like if you have a sensitive enough androgen receptor and enough testosterone, DHT doesn't do anything at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can make the argument. uh, Our friend Derek said, that DHT is very important or that it is not important at all after someone has been through puberty and neural development. Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. Uh, I suppose it is possible that we'll discover a DHT receptor at some point or maybe a membrane androgen receptor, who knows? Um, But for now, it's just the one that we know of. Next is mint, uh, which is trestolone as HRT, hormone replacement therapy or birth control. I think this was two different comments that we got. Yeah. And the difference, HRT versus birth control, as you've said before, HRT is basically, or birth control is basically synthetic HRT. So this would just be a male version of such. Um, Unfortunately, it seems to carry a significant performance enhancing effect, at least Ah. when people are taking it recreationally. Uh, at higher doses than it is studied for birth control because there are, I guess, UGLs that are synthesizing this. I don't think people are getting it from universities or compounding pharmacies at this point in time, but who knows? So I should stop my three bags of trust. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, uh, I guess that's why they, whoever they is, uh, is not letting this form of contraception go through, not the whole host of side effects that are significant potential concerns. Yeah, this was not something I would say that uh, we should be putting into developing men. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't even say like if it was just TRT plus something else as a contraceptive, mm-hmm. I'd say, yeah, you're probably going to cause a lot of harm. Especially uh, not orally. Yeah. I think I believe someone at least proposed an implant 
similar to implanon. Again, if you look at the history of implanon and nexplanon, and the one before that, even implants with uh, progestins have had a significant history of side effects as well. Yeah, I saw something about a little on-off switch, basically a, a lever. Um, you think of like a circuit and a current. Um, but implanting something like that at the vas deferens that could be switched on and off. Yeah. Now, of course, with that, you're going to have a risk of scar tissue, and it's a very small structure. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how feasible that is, but that was something that I read at, and I was like, I bet an engineer thought of this. Yeah. He's like, it's just a plumbing problem. Yeah, I like that idea. And then, of course, like the material chemist thought of the vassal gel, which I think they studied in India, where it's a polymer, and then when you want to, and you inject it in the vas, you want it mm -hmm. gone, you inject the depolymerizing agent. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of promising things for male contraception, but um, for now that remains in the deep ocean where it belongs. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next we have uh, another question about SHBG. I think this is a double. We said uh, yep. how to raise SHBG. So looking at things like your exercise, uh, how much cardio you're doing, your carbohydrate intake, and then genetics, of course, play a role there. Uh, basically anything you take in orally that's estrogenic, like a contraceptive, is going to raise SHBG. Things you take in orally, like an androgen, are going to lower SHBG. They kind of have a tug of war uh, at the liver there, just like they do in a lot of tissues, talking about the balance mm -hmm. beam between hormones. Next we have a, uh, I think this is our first mention of the prostate. Um, hmm. So used to be the idea that TRT causes prostate cancers. So now someone is asking, what is TRT's impact on PSA? So if we put TRT can affect PSA, that seems actually less well known. Yeah, maybe TRT and prostate would be up here. TRT and PSA would be down in the ocean. But it is pretty well known that uh, TRT is an androgen and mm -hmm. binds the androgen receptor in the prostate. Um, if you are not on dutasteride, then you're going to have a lot of activity of 5-alpha reductase type 3, including compared to finasteride. Um, and of course, there's uh, several different isoenzymes of 5-alpha reductase in the prostate. Again, see our 5-alpha reductase podcast on that. I believe we talked for that for over an hour, so we don't need to do it today. But um, DRT can certainly grow prostate cancers. Um, First-line general therapy involves decreasing, one way or another, decreasing the amount of androgen binding to the androgen receptor in the prostate cancer, but it's more of a fuel rather than the root cause. Yeah. And that's actually the, one of the papers that I was, I posted the snippet from that table earlier. Um, it was the testosterone level in milligrams per deciliter. It was actually a paper on flutamide, and the serum testosterone levels are unchanged, but you're mm -hmm. definitely changing the way that those testosterone levels behave. Mm -hmm. So those patients did not actually have a testosterone level of 500 million nanogram per deciliter. It was simply a typo that somehow made it through into the Journal of Andrology. Uh, but as far as PSA specifically, getting back to the original question, you'll see a lot of studies that indicate that in general, PSA does not increase after starting testosterone. It really depends on the duration of the hypogonadism. So mm -hmm. if you've just got a, an entrepreneur who's doing his you know, TRT or TRT plus because he heard that it's the best thing, he probably doesn't have an atrophied prostate. He didn't have androgen deficiency to begin with. That's sort yeah. of an off-label use. Mm -hmm. But if you are truly hypogonadal or have been for 10 years, your prostate has probably atrophied. And PSA has somewhat of a correlation with your prostate size, depends on how leaky the prostate is as well, or if mm -hmm. there's inflammation or infection there. Mm -hmm. But you could see a rise in the PSA after initiating TRT as it enlarges. And then you would definitely want to watch for that to stabilize. Yep. You see a continued rise in the PSA. Um, and as Dr. Schaefer pointed out on the ATIA podcast, yes. men being aware of their PSA and the effects of finasteride and dutasteride on that is very important. In general, it cuts it in half. Yeah, that's a good rule of thumb. But yeah, it absolutely can affect PSA. You just want to make sure that it has stabilized once you've been on the therapy. Three months would be a good time to get a recheck. Mm -hmm. um, I think PSA is pretty seldomly checked in the traditional medical model, maybe annually or even more infrequently. Yeah, um, that's an excellent summary. Um, I guess uh, slightly related to the prostate and TRT is TRT and fertility. 
Should you freeze sperm prior to starting? Should you do enclomiphen? Should you do Novaldex? Should you do Kispeptin, HCG, FSH? What should you do while on TRT? Should you do this the whole time? Should you pulse it? Yeah, so I guess TRT decreases fertility. That's pretty well known. Mm -hmm. As far as what to do about it, that's a trickier question. So TRT, and I want to emphasize this, reversibly will decrease fertility. Um, you know, this is evidenced by plenty of you know, bodybuilders who have been professional wrestlers who have used testosterone and other androgens on and off many, many years and decades even, mm -hmm. and then they manage to restore fertility. That doesn't mean that they have the most optimal testicular health, but it just goes to show if there's not an underlying issue beforehand, generally that can be restored. So something to consider before going on TRT, maybe not something as far as freezing sperm, but maybe a semen analysis to see, is there an underlying issue here? You know, otherwise in the future, let's say you do come off TRT, uh, you don't know whether you're, you don't have a baseline to work with. You're kind mm -hmm. of guessing at that point. Here's a decent algorithm or flowchart for uh, any academic society that might be looking for one. Check baseline spermatozoa parameters. If your sperm count or motility or morphology or fragmentation or something is poor, improve and optimize that. Wait a second. No, you just go straight to IVF. Just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Improve and optimize that. And then might as well freeze some sperm now that things are perfect. You know, worst case scenario, you have those as a backup, ideally with a motility greatly more than 40%. So even after you thaw them out and lose a bit of motility, you can still do IUI, unless you're trying to fill the pockets of your local REI. <laughs> and then um, after that, consider initiation of TRT. Hmm. I didn't hear Clomid, Kispeptin, or HCG in those guidelines. <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose not. Yeah, but um, you, you did mention Clomid earlier saying, hey, you know, there's really not a reason to take this. It works on a, basically the TRT is going to overwhelm that area of the HPTA axis that mm -hmm. it fits into in someone who's non-suppressed. Mm -hmm. So unless you're taking extraordinarily high doses of Clomid, mm -hmm. or I mean, maybe if someone was using Clomid alongside an oral testosterone or a nasal testosterone, then you see an effect. But yep. in general, there's a lot better choices out there. Yep. As I mentioned, HCG being used for fertility, up to even very high doses, um, that will give you a lot of LH action. Um, one thing this person didn't mention is FSH, which yep. is uh, basically laser targeted for your Sertoli cells, where yep. spermatogenesis is happening. Yeah, uh, FSH is a great addition for a lot of individuals. There's folotropin alpha, there's folotropin beta, kind of two isoforms of FSH. You can also get a mix. Um, I like the names of different things like Eurofolotropin comes from, in general, urine purified, but it's not always that way. Um, and then menotropins uh, from menopausal women, because high, high FSH and LH, which can also be a reasonable addition for some individuals. Um, and then pregnal, love the name of that as well. I like it back in the day when they named the medication after what it did. Like giloglutide. Yeah. So that would be a GLP-1 from the Gila monster. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's a, a pretty good summary is, um, try to fix the problem before it's a problem, but while you're on TRT, if fertility is desired, talk to your provider. There's lots of reasonable options. Um, there's more and more studies on gonadorelin, which is basically a close analog to endogenous GnRH, which can make your pituitary make its own FSH and LH more often. Although in studies on men with Kalman syndrome, FSH looks to have uh, better outcomes, better fertility rates, but uh, often men on TRT are not as suppressed as men with Kalman syndrome, which is uh, mm. basically hypothalamic hypogonadism, um, often with anosmia or trouble smelling. But um, yeah, an individualized regimen is important. Um, not everybody on TRT has to be on a fertility adjunct 100% of the time. Yeah, and I would say it's important to know that you may not have to discontinue TRT 100%. You scale back dosage so you maintain some benefit of quality of life. And I would say don't go run out and trying like Kispeptin and gonadotropin if it's yep. a specifically a time-sensitive issue, which mm -hmm. fertility often is. You're planning for a certain window of time, then you want to know what's sort of tried and true and be planning well in advance for that. So I think that's a really good summary. 
So now we have, uh, let's see, we talked about DHT receptors. We did that. TRT builds muscle. How have we not had that question up to this point? Yeah. So uh, that, that is about as high in the sky as you can get. And in, yeah, bold, very large font there. TRT equals muscle. So everybody that's on TRT is just jacked. They're like a fitness influencer. Pretty much. Yoked and shredded. <laughs> No, but one of the finer points about this, I don't think we have to rehash that the reason that testosterone builds muscle, but one of the interesting points here is there's different timelines on the different effects of testosterone. So mm -hmm. when someone goes from a, again, truly hypogonadal state to a androgen sufficient state, in pretty short order, they'll notice things like perhaps their sleep quality is improving, perhaps their energy levels are better, perhaps their motivation improves. Again, none of these things are 100%. Mm -hmm. um, but then that's going to sort of cap at maybe two, three months in, uh, provided that their dose stays the same. Mm -hmm. Whereas testosterone's effect on your body composition, it, it doesn't really have a cap. I mean, if you continue exercising regularly, it's not that you get three months in and then you stop making gains. Mm -hmm. And basically you can continue to exercise and continue to take advantage of having a healthy hormone profile and building that lean body mass. So people ask, you know, well, well when does it plateau? And it kind of depends on what aspect you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Next, TRT increases hemoglobin. We've already gone over that. Subcutaneous testosterone. We have not gone over that. Wait, that doesn't exist. Those pharmacists always yell at me for prescribing it. <laughs> Yeah. Um, in fact, there's a brand name FDA approved subcutaneous testosterone. I think there's only one so far. Oh, then I should just prescribe so, that. Well, that's G. That's not a T. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and in fact, a lot of insurances cover it. So it's called Zyostad XY. That is a medicine that's named after what it does. Ah, Keeps you XY. XY. <laughs> that's clever. That's good. But yeah, subcutaneous testosterone if you're looking for a optimal way to administer the testosterone, you know, breaking up into more frequent injections and subcutaneous injections, it's going to give you the more the most hormone stability. Uh, if let's say I did a testosterone injection in my shoulder and then I went and exercised chest and shoulders, yep. I'm going to get a faster peak and a faster trough of that hormone. Whereas if mm -hmm. I just did it sub Q, it doesn't matter to a large extent what type of exercise I'm doing. I'm going to have a relatively steady state. Um, and then it's also not going to give me scar tissue in the muscle. Um, it's a less painful injection typically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's really uh, little to no downside. I guess if you were trying to think of a downside, then you could say if someone's profoundly hypogonadal, it would take them like another week to get to steady state. But that's not going to make a difference clinically. They're going to feel great even after their first injection of subcutaneous testosterone. Mm -hmm. And if you really want to get around it and you're really concerned with getting an optimal level, then you can modulate the dose or you can say, you know, do this dose, um, you know, three times a week for the first week and then twice a week after that. Uh, a loading dose like that 40 migs of dutasteride. Yeah. Or that 280 migs of 400 migs, 400 milligrams of finasteride. It's another topic. See our finasteride dutasteride podcast for that. That's what I call a loading dose. <laughs> yeah. Um, but subcutaneous testosterone is, uh, uh, the one of the important things to remember is you are going to have a way easier time doing this if you use a half inch needle or a five sixteenths inch needle, even a five eighths inch needle. Um, unless you're altering the angle and really trying not to go all the way in, you're going to have a harder time if you're relatively lean to get uh, sub Q. You do not necessarily have to do it in the abdominal subcutaneous adipose like the brand name medications usually have you do. Mm -hmm. And even doing it subcutaneous, yes, the esterase enzymes that your body has do take longer to reach the depot site, as you mentioned. But for most people, twice a week is still optimal, but it does let slightly more people do a once-a-week administration and makes it much more convenient. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, next we have TRT causes roid rage. So this is an interesting one. This is something I think Tom. everyone has heard of. It has to be... Somewhere in the sky, right? Yeah. And when it comes to this, what I had always heard people that were pushing back against this, let's say, I don't know, 10 years ago, they were like, well, it doesn't cause it directly, but it will amplify someone's personality traits. 
Um, and then uh, Andrew Huberman actually had a, some very interesting neurobiology like underpinnings there yeah. where it can affect the amygdala and basically decreases the threshold for a response. So I think it's a very scientific way to kind of say the same thing that, you know, this person that may have responded to something or may not have responded to something at baseline. Now with the testosterone in their system, they're more inclined to act on whatever that stimulus mm -hmm. is. Another way to look at it would be, and again, this is kind of borrowing from Dr. Huberman, is saying whatever effort you generally like to exert your effort on, that effort will feel better. Yeah, that's going to become the, the mantra of dopamine and testosterone now is that it makes effort feel good. And I think that that's a, a very nice rebranding from like a, a toxic, illegal, you know, uh, underground, like yep. bad hormone. So I think it's a much nicer way to think about it. Definitely. Uh, next is TRT and iron status. We did briefly mention this when we talked about ferritin and phlebotomy. Yeah, maybe they should have asked, what about estrogen and iron status? Yep. That is a, uh, a good way to think about it. I know we've talked about and posted in the past about the estrogen hepcidin uh, iron axis. So uh, in general, hepcidin is going to help inhibit the absorption of estrogen, but when hepcidin is inhibited by estrogen, which of course testosterone aromatizes to, then you are going to uptake more iron. So a good rule of thumb is testosterone decreases your iron because you make more red blood cells with it, but it also can, if you're you know estrogen deficient and it gives you enough estrogen to um, kind of help absorb enough iron, it can also modulate that. So usually we see ferritin go down when someone starts TRT, because they're mm -hmm. kind of using that ferritin more. But at the same time, um, you know, if you're very low estrogen, it might be slightly different. So in the long run, some people still tend to get iron overloaded when they're on TRT. Yeah, it's something to keep tabs on and it's fairly easy to manage with phlebotomy and, and not over phlebotomy like we spoke to earlier. Most people, even that have a, a predisposition, even if they have hereditary hemochromatosis, HFE, whatnot, um, most of the time, once they're at a baseline, their routine phlebotomy does not need to be more than twice a year. So yeah. you, get, you get to your baseline and then after that, do not over phlebotomize. Yeah, it's much easier to maintain than it is to kind of get to that ideal category. And, and this is something that you should be testing before you even go on TRT, thinking of it in the other direction. It's like mm -hmm. a, a rare cause of hypogonadism would be iron overload and it, yeah. usually an extreme case of that. Yeah, hemochromatosis certainly has a higher incidence of older onset hypogonadism. It's well known. Iron builds up, it rusts just like if you leave a shovel outside. Rusts the thyroid gland, rusts the testes, rusts the liver. Right. Um, and that's an oversimplification, but it's a good analogy that you can <laughs> yeah, think about. It people with. can grasp that. A few other things. If your hematocrit and red blood cell is spiking up and your iron, which by the way, ferritin is the protein that carries iron and ferritin is basically your body's stockpile of iron. Make sure your CRP is not, check a CRP. If your CRP is high, your ferritin might be falsely elevated. If this is elevated, but your ferritin is not, then why is your erythropoietin spiking? Are you injecting erythropoietin because you're a triathlete or a cyclist? Fair play, all of them do. This, that's a joke, by the way, for for those uh, triathletes and cyclists that do not use erythropoietin and boxers, UFC fighters. But think about, do they live at elevation? Do they have sleep apnea? Very common to see that with sleep apnea. Do they have Pickwickian syndrome without sleep apnea, where they're sleeping on their back and their chest is so heavy that it's just crushing their lungs and causing nocturnal hypoxia? But you're probably having tissue hypoxia at some level. Do they have a jack mutation? There's a lot of causes. But, um, or do they have uncontrolled uh, blood pressure? Uh, ARBs are also known to slightly decrease hemoglobin and hematocrit, but I can't think of a situation where you would want to use an ARB solely for that purpose. Yeah, that would be a bit of a stretch. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next we have TRT plus. So I think I briefly mentioned this earlier. Uh, if you're following along with the, yeah, where are we gonna put this one? Is this about, uh, maybe it used to be deep iceberg and now it's mid iceberg. It used to be, be here, but now everybody says they're on TRT. Yeah, right yeah. here, if TRT you've been, plus. If you've been following the fitness industry or the social media circles there, uh, a lot of people are just on TRT, bro. But the physiques 
and their accomplishments and their lifts are getting better and better and better, but they're just on TRT, bro. Yeah. If your favorite fitness influencer is on TRT, they're probably on TRT plus. Um, in the video that I did with Greg Doucette, it's years ago at this point, mm -hmm. he asked me about TRT plus and being on Anivar or Oxandrolone at the same time. Um, we recently talked about being on TRT and SARMs. We don't recommend it, but we see it. <laughs> yeah. um, and we will have a video on SARMs. We'll have an update on SARMs soon because there is some promising SARMs for uh, various pathologies, mostly Wait, breast cancer. SARM? Uh, it's, it could be coming soon. Inobosarm. It doesn't have a fun um, peptide name, but uh, there, there likely will be approved SARMs within five years is my prediction. So we'll have an update on that soon, but for now they're research chemicals. But uh, a lot of patients come in and say, uh, you know, do you do TRT plus? Uh, you could argue anything over 150 milligrams of testosterone a week is TRT plus. Yeah, I mean, and you could make the argument if I'm a, um, I don't know, a prude guideline follower that anything separate from 200 mg every two weeks is TRT plus, because that's what the guidelines say. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't there be an advantage to take, let's say you split that 200 and you do 100 one week and 100 the other week? That has to be a better protocol, even from a performance standpoint. So is that TRT plus if you're injecting more than every two weeks? That's definitely not a plus. That may, might be a minus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, we could also come up with a hyper extreme example. Let's say there's a female with a history of breast cancer who has, uh, let's say it's estrogen receptor positive. It's not triple negative androgen receptor positive, <laughs> yeah, <that means. laughs> but it's estrogen receptor positive. And um, they are asking about HRT. They have very low libido. They have sarcopenia. They have osteoporosis. And they ask, well, what HRT regimen can I do? Can I do DHEA? Uh, converts to estradiol intracellularly. Can I do estriol? Can I do estetrol? Those are still kind of up for debate. Maybe some estriol. It yeah. could be pretty reasonable. Yeah, definitely. Can they do testosterone? Yeah, testosterone, there's actually, um, I believe this is a pellet study, which you know, I, I don't think anyone asked us a single thing about pellets. Maybe they're kind of falling out of favor after people realize that it, a small number of people love them, but most people don't seem to, to find them sustainable. Um, but I believe it was a pellet study that showed yep. that long-term treatment with testosterone actually decreased incidence of breast cancer, yep. which is kind of interesting. So depending on, like you said, the workup of the tissue and what it is expressing, if it's expressing androgen receptors, that's a hard no. If it's expressing estrogen receptors, not expressing androgen receptors, then testosterone becomes a lot more reasonable. And maybe that testosterone is paired with an aromatase inhibitor. It could be. So you don't get the tissue conversion in the or the hormone conversion in the mammary tissue. Yep. There's a lot of ways to go about this. And, and this is something that has had some really interesting papers as the transgender community, these trans men have been diagnosed with breast cancer. So yep. born you know, biologically female and then mm -hmm. they get a breast cancer. It's like, well, this guy's on a lot of testosterone. What mm -hmm. are we gonna do about that? So, yep. and the answer is that right now, they kind of don't know because there's no guidelines for that sort of thing. But if they aromatize, if they aromatize a lot and they are at a high body fat percentage, you're more concerned for aromatization. Mm -hmm. Maybe instead of an aromatase inhibitor, you consider a synthetic androgen, a non-aromatizing androgen, a non-aromatizing androgen. Like that sounds better than synthetic. Methenolone sounds like a good name of a drug to treat yeah. breast cancer. Methenolone, yeah, that uh, could very well treat breast cancer. Oxandrolone, that could also be another one. That could work and it would not convert to estrogen and it could provide a lot of other benefits. Like bone density? Lowering lipoprotein little a. Yep. But um, we love exceptions and this is kind of a hyper extreme example, but it just goes to show that depending on what your specific situation is, some things might work better than another individual. This hypothetical individual we've been talking about is probably going to be a hyper responder to ecdysteroids. Those fitness influencer bug steroids, yeah, they may not work for your 20-year-old gym bro, but they have a pretty good shot of working in yep. someone who has a very hypoestrogenic state. Like if, if you're going to pick the ideal candidate for those, it makes a lot of sense. Yep. Your mom that's on an aromatase inhibitor and has had breast cancer, she might need some tricesterone. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. Next we have, we already talked about TRT and heart disease. TRT causes blood clots and AFib. Where are we going to put this? Because this is, well, we Ooh. talked about it, so it can't be in the very bottom of the ocean. Yeah. I would say right up here by blood pressure, put just a, underneath the surface. Just underneath the TRT quack that will yeah. tell you TRT does not cause AFib or blood clots. TRT does nothing bad. Yeah. So um, the mechanism of this is important. Um, this is mostly based off of the New England Journal of Medicine study. Again, see our podcast that um, we did primarily on that study, but we reviewed about 10 different studies. They did another study, I believe at the VA, which did not show a significant incidence in, I forget if it was the blood clots or the AFib. I think it was the AFib, the AFib. in that case, yeah. Yep. But with this, it looks pretty clear in a very high risk population, mostly diabetic, mostly with hyperlipidemia, um, mostly with high blood pressure. Yeah, with people on blood pressure meds, on cholesterol meds, about half of them already had heart disease. So if you're in an extremely high risk population, it can be sort of the, the straw that breaks the camel's back or that mm -hmm. sort of proverbial like going off the cliff, like tipping over into that AFib or causing a blood clot. So it's something to think about. I mean, this is probably not a significant concern for a person who's in good health, but mm -hmm. it's something to think about, you know, especially if there's a family history there yep. um, or a you know, hypercoagulable state that's there. It could certainly yep. tip the balance. So you should consider checking your patient that's at high risk of venous thromboembolism for something like a prothrombin or a factor five. What? Your sister got a blood clot in her leg when she was 22? Oh, that's probably nothing. Insurance doesn't cover it though. And they're going to bill you like a thousand bucks, right? How much does one of those tests cost? Out Both of them for 50 bucks. Yeah. If you're going outside of the insurance model. Yep. And yeah, we're, we're suckers for deals. So we love going outside of the insurance model to get a deal. Yep. I would not recommend trying to get your insurance to cover that because I want to do some TRT. You haven't had a blood clot yet. Why would you test that? <laughs> yeah. That's that's the prior auth. That's what that's going to read. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing as a CCTA. Not to derail things too much, but it's like, well, you don't have a congenital defect of your coronary artery, so you don't need one. You don't have a stent. Why do you need to see if things are open? <sighs> yeah. <laughs> um, Anyway, we discussed mechanisms. I think we did at least an hour on that podcast. We talked a lot about thromboxane, which is basically what makes, makes platelets sticky. So talk to your doctor about, are your platelets sticky enough? Are they too sticky? Are they um, not enough sticky? Are you on too much aspirin? Um, there's a fine balance to all those things. And platelets, of course, are an antiplatelet, or sorry, aspirin is an antiplatelet, but not an anticoagulant, but it can still decrease the incidence of venous thromboembolism. Um, so see our podcast for more info on that. And it looks like our last one here is asking about boosters. They say, do the boosters work? Um, I've been told that they're safe and effective. Wait a second. They, they're asking about testosterone boosters. Be I'm going to frame this question a little differently. I'm going to say <laughs> testosterone boosters work. And then I'm going to put that in the very deep sea. Because it. this is a highly debated topic, work, question mark. The way I'd think about it, um, I, I believe that most people call their products testosterone boosters because that's what people search for. So, you know, a, a young individual wants to boost testosterone naturally, they search test boosters. What these are really are testosterone vitamins. Our colleague Diana, our sports dietitian, talked a lot about this because a, a supplement is not going to boost your testosterone, but if you are deficient or insufficient, or you have a backlog in one of the pathways of the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis, they can help. Yeah, it, it's either vitamins or nutrients that your body needs to perform not just testosterone synthesis, but other processes adequately, mm -hmm. or certain, you know, nutraceuticals, supplements that can actually act on the enzymes that are involved in steroidogenesis. Yep. And you do have variable responses here. I mean, for you know, every person that I've seen with a like incredible response to a you know test booster or a group of test boosters, I've seen some people where they just don't respond. And in that mm -hmm. case, maybe they have a you know naturally hyperfunctioning enzyme in that same area. It's like, well, 
you know, this person's a non-responder to this. So I, I would kind of divide it into thirds if I'm thinking about a well-formulated product, mm -hmm. um, you know, like the you know, perhaps Gorilla Mind Sigma that's hitting a lot of different vectors. Mm -hmm. And assuming this person is not in you know, like a, a disastrous metabolic shape, probably about a third of people you know, don't respond or respond very minimally. A third of people, we get a pretty good response. And then a third of people seem to have an above average response. Yeah. Um, a summary that I would give of test boosters off the top of my head. If sleep is the rate limiting step, any supplement or lifestyle change that improves your sleep is going to be a fantastic test booster and a growth hormone booster. Two for one. Yeah. <laughs> um, if uh, metabolic health is limiting your testosterone, then any supplement or medication or lifestyle change that improves your metabolic health and body composition is going to improve your testosterone and your testosterone to estradiol ratio. If you're very low insulin, low IGF-1, you might and low DHEA, DHEA sulfate, you might be a good candidate for Tongkat that works in the same, same stratogenesis enzymes. Um, we see that uh, pretty consistently. Very low DHEA, more Tongkat needed. Um, next, if you're high cortisol or very stressed out, um, and especially if you have uh, extremely high cortisol, ashwagandha might work better. There's pretty good evidence for ashwagandha. In general, you would want Sensoril or KSM-66 and not too high of a dose. Probably like 300 to 600 megs. Yeah, and I think the KSM has been studied also in fertility, or perhaps it was the same study looking at, you know, something that it definitely doesn't seem to have a worrisome effect as far as testicular toxicity, mm -hmm. like some of the lesser studied supplements out there. I mean, if you're producing more and better quality sperm, you'd assume testicular health is overall better. Yep. Taurine might be a decent option, mm -hmm. or even horse chestnut extract if you have varicocele or testicular damage. Um, if you have low LH or a less sensitive LH receptor, then Fidoja agrestis might be a decent option. We've talked about the potential side effects of that and the lack of um, any human yeah, trial. It's been, what, probably close to two years since we spoke about that first. And well, yep. we were thinking, oh, more trials will be coming soon because this is so popular. And I think, at least as of a couple months ago, that yep. it's the same three rat studies that yep. are on PubMed. Yep. Uh, maybe we'll have to do it ourselves someday. <laughs> so we'll see. But um, yeah, no, lots of anecdotal evidence for that. Um, it has a nice mechanism of action um, and decent anecdotal data, but not a lot of clinical data. So it's kind of like the opposite end of the spectrum of another, of another supplement we like, which is rhodiola rosea. Not very well-defined mechanism. Also great anecdotal evidence and historic use, but it does have a lot of... Um, data as well. Yeah, a lot of clinical data, but still no mechanism, which is intriguing. I, I suppose it makes it easier for people to recommend to their clients or patients yeah. because like, yep, how does it work? We don't know, but it just does. Yeah. So it kind of almost, it's almost good for that. It reminds me of a supplement version of it. modafinil. Yeah. It's like, well, modafinil works several ways, but Mysterious. It, it works. Yeah. So who's a good candidate for modafinil <laughs> unless you have a uh, contraindication, like you're a good, you're a good candidate. You're not allergic to it. Great. There you go. Um, there's your creatine. There's your omega. There's your multivitamin and there's your rhodiola, I guess. Um, but anyway, uh, past that, if you're boron deficient, boron is a great test booster. If you're vitamin D deficient, vitamin D is a great test booster. If you're magnesium deficient, which most people don't get enough magnesium in the diet, magnesium is a great test booster. And then, um, if you're selenium deficient, selenium is a great test booster. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good summary. And that was our last question. Do we have anything else to add? Let's take a look at our handiwork here. I'll say your writing is much nicer than mine. <laughs> well, uh, I guess for a pretty, doctor, it's pretty darn good for a physician. For a physician, <laughs> it's not too bad. Uh, hopefully, this has been helpful to a lot of individuals. In the future, we'll talk more about, um, uh, you know, like TRT clinics and logistics of getting your medication. We have another podcast about compounding pharmacies come up. How do you know to trust a compounding pharmacy? Um, perhaps some collaborations with some of our other friends in the media space regarding that. So lots to look forward to, but I think that is a good place to end it for today. Absolutely. So thank you so much for watching. Let us know your take, uh, where if we misplaced any of these on the iceberg, where you would have placed them. And again, thank you for watching. May God bless you with health and happiness.